morning. It's my joy to turn one more time to the book of Colossians with you. I would invite you to turn there with me. It's Colossians chapter 1. If you are using uh, a pew Bible in front of you, that, that's in the pew in front of you there, um, you will find that uh, our passage on page 983, I believe. Please feel free to use that. If you've found your place, I'm going to ask you once again to stand. And as we read last week, um, we're going to begin again in verse 9 and read through to verse 14. So this is the Word of God. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Would you pray together with me? Let's go to the Lord. Our great Father, we ask in the name of Jesus, by the power of your Spirit, that you would open our eyes to see the glories of Christ and his kingdom the salvation that he has purchased for his people, we are moved and thankful at what he has done for us. Would you teach us to be more thankful and to live that thankfulness out in lives of obedience to you? Again, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. We're picking up this morning in verse 12 here in Colossians 1. Of course, you'll notice uh, as you look at the text, um, picking up in verse 12 means that we're starting in the middle of a sentence. And in fact, it's one of those very long sentences that Paul often uses when he is writing with his um, very passionate, very eloquent writing style. And of course, when the sentence is this long, it can be somewhat hard to diagram and analyze and see where all the various parts, how all the various parts fit together. But I believe verse 12 does a couple of things, at least according to my understanding of the structure of this passage. One, it concludes Paul's description of the life that pleases God, which we saw largely last week in verses 9 through 11. The life that pleases God, as it's described here by the Apostle Paul, comes about, first of all, through God's gift of wisdom and understanding that enables us to be filled with the knowledge of His will, 
as it's found in Christ. And that knowledge of his will equips us to bear fruit by our good works and to grow in our knowledge of God himself. Then we are strengthened in that walk by God's own power working within us so that we learn to endure and to exercise patience with joy. Well, then what we have in verse 12 is a progression to something that's linked very closely to that joy. And it's something we would have to say is another essential element of the Christian life, the life that pleases God, and that is thanksgiving. Of course, in another context, um, for example, 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul will speak of thanksgiving as a direct command. Give thanks in all circumstances, he says, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. But here, I believe he does something even more significant, and that would be the second purpose of verse 12. He transitions to a glorious description of what it is that ought to make us so thankful. If we can see and taste and grasp the greatness of what God has done in redeeming a race of sinners and making them his own people, his own unique possession, then thanksgiving will begin to flow naturally from our hearts. Now, I'm sure all of you have either seen or experienced uh, the other kind of thanksgiving, uh, the words of thanks that are compelled more by a sense of duty or obligation. You know, um, it's the seven-year-old uh, who receives a package from, from grandma and he tears off the wrapping paper and it's a package of socks, right? And he may need a little coaching from mom or dad. What do you say, Johnny? Thank you, grandma. And he says, so he says the right words, but you can tell his heart really isn't in it because of the perceived lack of value of the gift, right? He thought he would have the socks anyway from his mom or dad. And on the other hand, some of you have, may have seen a video that has circulated online of a young girl. I want to say she's maybe 10 or 12 years old. She opens her package. She's tearing off the wrapping paper. And what she finds is a kitten. I don't know if you've seen that. She's, she's completely overwhelmed. I mean, to the point of speechlessness. She's just, is that, is that, she, she, she can hardly believe it's for her. It's so, um, it's so heartwarming to watch that. But we know our sense of awe and gratitude to God for our salvation in Christ. It should be at least as great as that, right? If our sense of awe and gratitude is lacking, it's because we are not seeing the full picture of what God has done for us. Where we once were, and what we have received through the work of Christ. So verses 12 through 14 not only give us a marvelous reminder, I think they give us a fuller picture than we ordinarily think of when we consider God's work of salvation on our behalf. We often think in categories that are too limited. <clears throat> Hell is a terrible place. I don't want to go there when I die. 
Isn't it wonderful that Jesus died for me so I don't have to suffer in hell forever? That's one way uh, we often think of it. And that's absolutely true. But the picture of salvation that we find in the Bible, the story or the drama of redemption, is bigger, it's fuller, and it's more satisfying than the abbreviated way we often think of salvation. So here, the language that Paul uses, his particular choice of words, shows us his categories of thought and where they come from. His language and his ideas come directly from the Old Testament. And they especially come from the events surrounding the central salvation event of the Old Testament history of God's people, which is the Exodus. Inheritance, deliverance, being transferred to a new kingdom, redemption. These are all Old Testament concepts that were realized by the Israelites in a very visible, tangible way when God promised them an inheritance in a new land and delivered them from the domain of Pharaoh, transferred them to a new kingdom and redeemed them with his outstretched hand and his mighty miracles of judgment and power. And that storyline becomes the basis for Paul's understanding of the work of God's work of salvation in the new covenant. What he is saying is that God's people in Christ have experienced a new exodus. They have been qualified for an eternal inheritance. They have been delivered from the oppressive domain, not of slave masters who threaten and punish the physical body, but of the hosts of darkness who rule and torment men's souls. And they have been redeemed with a purchase price that accomplishes the forgiveness of their sins. So what I want us to do this morning is to observe these themes that Paul takes from the Old Testament and use them as Paul does, as they're intended to be used. Sort of a tutorial that teaches us the language of redemption. I think some of you have used the Rosetta Stone curriculum to try to learn another language. Well, the salvation history of the Old Testament is our Rosetta Stone. It teaches us how to express and how to think about what happened when the fullness of time had come, and God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. I think we could use other analogies as well. The Old Testament gives us the palette of colors we use to paint the picture of redemption. The Old Testament teaches us the notes and chords of the song of redemption. The picture is not complete the music has not reached its climax until all things are brought to light by the appearing of Jesus Christ. But this is the necessary background. Paul and the other writers of the New Testament constantly refer back to the events and teachings of the Old Testament to give shape and meaning and ultimately a, a richer, fuller appreciation of what has happened in the New Covenant. So this is our real purpose here. Not just to enjoy a good story, but to call forth praise. Praise and worship and thanksgiving that is not just the fulfillment of, a, of an expected duty, but rather what is the natural response of a heart that has come to know these realities. So the first theme or idea we're going to look at is the idea of our inheritance, which is found in verse 11. The inheritance that God gave his people Israel receives 
a great deal of attention in the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua. The God who owns all the earth is laying a unique claim to a particular place. He is giving it as a possession to a particular people in a way that calls to mind a wealthy father bestowing the family estate upon his children. In fact, God calls Israel his firstborn son in a context that sets up the conflict between God and Pharaoh. Pharaoh, you need to release my son, Israel. Otherwise, I'm going to kill your son, your firstborn. So we know how that turns out. God judges Pharaoh. He brings his people into the wilderness. And during that time in the wilderness, he prepares them for the inheritance that they're going to receive. So in Numbers 26, beginning in verse 53, God tells Moses the land is supposed to be divided as an inheritance among the 12 tribes. Tribes with a larger number of people will receive a greater amount of land. Smaller tribes will receive a smaller portion. But every family within the greater family of Israel is supposed to receive a portion, an inheritance that remains within that family for, per for perpetuity. And of course, that's what's carried out in the book of Joshua. God tells Joshua there at the very beginning of the book, chapter 1, verse 6, be strong and courageous because you are going to cause the people to inherit the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And in the following chapters, we see Joshua and the children of Israel conquering the land. And in chapters 13 through 19, we see the land being divided among the various tribes as their inheritance. And of course, this is one of those portions of the Old Testament <clears throat> when we're reading through it in our Bible reading plan that frankly we're not very interested in because we, we don't see the point of this long list of places that belong to the various clans of the tribes of Judah. Then there's the boundaries for the territories of Ephraim and Manasseh and, and so on. We kind of say, well, why do I need to know this? Why has God included this in his word? So, we may try to find some extra significance for ourselves in passages like these, often, um, often by forcing our own application into the text. So maybe we read, God gave Ekron with its towns and villages, and Ashdod with its towns and villages, and Gaza with its towns and villages, to all the tribe of Judah. That's what we read there in Joshua 15. And we draw some kind of parallel to our own situation in the 21st century. And we say, God is giving us the city of Fort Worth with all its towns and villages, so we're going to claim Tarrant County for Jesus Christ. It's kind of a way of making the story center upon us in a way that it was never intended. The cities and towns of the Canaanite conquest were very real, historical places. They, they are meant to point forward to something greater that is still to come, still yet to be seen. We do not enter into that promised inheritance in this present age. Our inheritance waits for us in the new heavens and the new earth. You see, the point of Israel's inheritance was never houses and cities and flocks and vineyards. Those were the signs of God's blessings upon his people. But the center of it all was God's personal dwelling within their midst. In fact, there was one tribe out of all the tribes of Israel 
who was specifically chosen to make this point explicit. The tribe of Levi received special instructions and a special promise in passages like Leviticus 18 and Deuteronomy 10 that they were not to receive an inheritance of land like the other tribes because their inheritance was the Lord God himself and their service for him in the tabernacle. That's why they were supposed to be supported by the tithes of their fellow Israelites. All this is not just a bunch of historical detail. It shows the tremendous favor and privilege that God bestowed upon his people. Fertile land, abundant crops, all centered upon the worship of God in his prescribed way and place there at the tabernacle. Now under the terms of that old covenant, there were levels or degrees of nearness and access to God's presence. Also under the terms of that covenant, the whole thing could come crashing down if the people did not remain obedient. And we know that's exactly what happened. Through the sins of sloth, a lack of trust in the Lord, and ultimately rebellion and idolatry, the people of Israel eventually forfeited and lost their inheritance in the promised land. The priestly Levitical inheritance came to an end with the destruction of the temple. Just as Moses had warned them, the nation fell under God's curse and perished from the land which God had given them to possess. The inheritance was lost because the people could not fulfill the terms of the covenant under which it was promised. But that history of failure and tragedy makes a point. And it sets the stage for what God was going to accomplish in Christ. Under a new covenant, we have a new inheritance. The Father has qualified us, Paul tells us. The Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. The implication is, in our former state... We were disqualified, like Israel had disqualified themselves. We were unfit to share in this inheritance. But God has made us fit because he has made us holy by an act of free grace. He has set us apart by his own purpose and will. That's what is meant by calling us saints. And it's called the inheritance of the saints in light because it reflects the character of God who is light and the Lamb who is the lamp of the new Jerusalem. It's nothing less than life in the new heavens and the new earth where God dwells forever with his people. In this inheritance, there are, there are no degrees of distance or closeness to God. All are made priests with full access into his very presence. In this inheritance... No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I know there are many pressures and sorrows that weigh upon your heart as you go through the various activities and responsibilities of your week. 
But if you cannot find a joy to counteract those sorrows, if the song of thanksgiving is missing from your life, very likely it's because your heart is not filled with thoughts of your heavenly inheritance and what God has done to make you fit to receive that inheritance. Do we value this inheritance that lightly? Do we fall into the trap of viewing it as as boring and mundane? Do we see it in the same way uh, that the little boy looks looks at his package of socks? Well, meditating on these verses and other similar passages will help us to see the enormity of what we have received in Christ. Let's consider what Paul says next. He tells us how we found ourselves in this glorious new position. According to verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So here we have the idea of a transfer from one kingdom to another. The old kingdom is called the domain of darkness. The image is one one of helpless subjects serving under a cruel tyrant. The ruler of that old kingdom had no concern for their welfare. He ruled by fear and threats and domination. And of course it brings to mind the plight of the Hebrews under Pharaoh. We're told in Exodus 1 how the Egyptians set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens how they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service. And this, too, is an actual historical event that is meant to illustrate and point forward to a greater reality. The kingdom to which we all once belonged ruled us with bitter bondage. We were slaves, Paul tells us in Titus 3, Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hating, hated by others and hating one another. That's the character of the domain of darkness that Paul has in mind. That was our true nature when we were part of that kingdom. We were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Though there was nothing to distinguish us from the rest of mankind, God had mercy on us and delivered us from that domain. And again, here is where the image of the exodus is so helpful uh, to, el- to illuminate kind of the full meaning and background of the text. You see, it doesn't, quite, it doesn't quite capture the picture if we think of an individual captive set free from slavery or from prison, as happy as that would be. Instead, we're supposed to think of this huge mass of people standing by the sea previously enslaved, now set free from slavery as they stand at the shore and witness the judgment and destruction of their enemies. (laughs) This is not a thank you for the socks kind of joy. 
I mean, the people are dancing and shouting and they're singing and carrying on. They're hugging one another and tears are running down their faces, right? They can't believe what's happened. They've been set free. After years of slavery and bondage under the old rule, they're now members of a new kingdom. And the ruler of this kingdom is wise and good and powerful. He cares for his subjects and sacrifices himself in order to meet their true need. In fact, that's how they were set free. He, that is the ruler of their new kingdom, he paid the price that was necessary to accomplish their deliverance. And that moves us into verse 14. He says, In whom, in this one, in God's beloved Son, Jesus Christ, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Redemption is the purchase of something or someone that has previously been sold to an owner or into a condition that is undesired or undesirable in some way. And so perhaps the original owner or perhaps someone else buys the possession back. That's a working definition of redemption. But again, we will get a much better picture if we look at the Old Testament background. So Leviticus 25 gives instructions for the redemption of one who has been sold into slavery. I'm going to read verses 47 to 49. You can turn there with me if you like. If a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you, or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him, or a close relative from his clan may redeem him, or if he grows rich, he may redeem himself. So here we have this description. An, Ilist- an Israelite becomes poor. He's unable to meet his financial obligations, so he is sold as a slave to a master who will require enough service, won't he, to make his purchase worthwhile. And yes, there are laws in place to protect the welfare of this slave, but the point is he has lost his freedom. It's certainly not the kind of life he would voluntarily choose for himself. And so if a close relative has compassion on this member of the family, and if he has the resources necessary to do so, or if the slave himself somehow acquires the resources, a purchase price can be paid to set the man free. Freedom is accomplished by the act of someone who is wealthy enough and generous enough to make the requisite payment. And what is striking and powerful is how God repeatedly uses this idea to refer to Israel's rescue from slavery in Egypt. There's actually quite a few passages where this takes place in the book of Deuteronomy. I want to read some of them. And as I read these verses, uh, I want us to notice a couple of things. One is simply the expression that is used. 
Moses, and God speaking through Moses, calls this mighty, defining work of salvation at the Exodus an act of redemption. And second, what God calls his act of redemption for his people out of their bondage in Egypt becomes the basis for how God relates to his people and how they relate to him and how they relate to one another from that time forward. So first of all, Deuteronomy 7, verse 8. I think I'll start with verse 7. Deuteronomy 7, verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people, more in number than any other people, that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You see the redemption language there. Being brought out and redeemed is all referring to the act of their rescue from Egypt. Turn over to Deuteronomy. It may be just one page in your Bible. Deuteronomy 9, verse 26. This is the context of Moses praying and interceding to the Lord for the people. He says in rehearsing that, in reviewing that, he says, And I prayed to the Lord, O Lord God, do not destroy your people and your heritage, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. You see how that's the basis for what gives Moses the courage to pray and intercede to the Lord. You've redeemed us. You've made us your own brought by bringing us out of Egypt. So therefore, please don't destroy your heritage. Deuteronomy 15 and verse 15. It's in a section that is giving regulations about how to treat slaves, servants... And the basis is found in God's act of redemption for the whole people of Israel. Verse 15, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. The basis for his command of how to treat one another was to remember they were slaves once. God redeemed them. One more passage One more verse in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 24, verse 18. Very similar idea. Okay, let's go back to, let's start with verse 17. You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless, or take a widow's garment in pledge... But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. Command you to do what? Well, don't pervert justice due to those who are are weak and in a vulnerable position. Sojourners, aliens, fatherless, orphans, widows. Don't be tight-fisted with them. The The reason is for remembering what God has done for them as a people. They were slaves. They've been redeemed. Now I have one more passage I want us to look at. 
This is fast forwarding hundreds of years into Israel's history. This is in Jeremiah chapter 16. Here Jeremiah is speaking about a great work that God will do in the future. The exodus comes to mind as a sort of comparison and, and, and actually a point of contrast between, between it and how much greater this future work will be. So Jeremiah 16, 14 prophesies, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said... As the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. In other words, that was the common expression um, throughout most of Israel's history. They would look back to this event. As the Lord lives, what is it that gives them their understanding and their relationship, the understanding of their relationship to this God? Well, he's the one who brought us out of the land of Egypt, brought us out of the land of slavery. But one day it will be said instead this... As the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, for I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. So that defining moment of Israel's history, the great act of redemption accomplished at the Exodus, became a benchmark, a point of reference that the family of God was supposed to look back to in remembrance and say... This is what God has done for us. This is what defines us as a people. And this also defines how we're supposed to act. But, Jeremiah tells us, that act of redemption would one day be eclipsed by an even greater event. A greater act. And that is what Paul celebrates here in Colossians 1. It's the new exodus. The redemption from exile. Where we once wandered far from God's beneficent rule in the destructive, idolatrous lifestyle of the Gentile nations. The purchase price that God paid was the infinite cost of his own son. That was the payment that was necessary to satisfy God's justice in order to forgive our sins. That's what it took to qualify us for the inheritance. We were unfit because of our sin, our treachery, our rebellion and idolatry. We were hopelessly enslaved in our bondage under an oppressive king. The event that has made all the difference is God's work of salvation in Jesus Christ. This is what feeds our joy. This is what fuels our thanksgiving. You know, not all of us can write beautiful poetry to express our thanksgiving the way Brother Travis did last week or as our sister Sherry Hare has written some beautiful poetry in the past. We don't all have the same personality. We don't express our emotions in the same way. But there is an emotional response that is called for. Actually, a whole range of emotions we ought to experience when we look at where we once found ourselves and where God has brought us. Now, those emotions are not the sole test of genuine Christian experience. They have to be backed up by good works and, and acts of obedience and mercy. But the pathway of mere duty, just doing the right thing because it's what you're supposed to do, 
is neither sustainable nor is it ultimately pleasing to God. True Christian obedience is possible only when accompanied by true Christian gratitude. And that's not something that happens on the outside. It happens on the inside. It's a heartfelt response to the greatness of what God has accomplished in Jesus Christ. You may not write poetry or beautiful music, but in fact there are a lot of songs recorded for us in Scripture. Songs that were written to give expression to this sense of wonder and praise for the mighty acts of God accomplished in the redemption of His people. And one of those songs you may know very well, appropriately enough, is sung by Moses and the children of Israel there at the edge of the Red Sea. I think many of you are familiar with this passage, but I want, uh, I want you to listen as I read it. Follow along in your Bibles and take note of some of these same ideas we see here that we've already observed in our text in Colossians 1. So this is found in Exodus 15. I actually want to start with the last couple verses of chapter 14. Beginning in chapter 14, verse 30, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. <coughs> then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The, flood, the floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. 
The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. The themes that are sung here will be echoed repeatedly throughout the history of God's people. Judgment, salvation, redemption, inheritance, all exhibiting the unique character and might of God who acts to deliver his people and make them his own possession. The Psalms will celebrate the revelation of God with these same categories. The prophets will use these themes as prototypes for what will take place in the future. The authors of the New Testament will show how these themes find their fulfillment in Christ. We've already seen how Paul plays these same notes in his expression of thanksgiving there in Colossians 1. And when we get to the end of God's revelation to us, we hear again the song of redemption sung by those who have been, who have been redeemed from the earth, those who follow the Lamb wherever He goes, as it says in Revelation 14, and as the scene is described in Revelation 15, which I want to read as we close here. John writes in Revelation 15, verse 2, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. I think there's a number of parallels between this and the song of Moses uh, there at the Red Sea. In fact, verse 3 says, says this, And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. <clears throat> the revelation of the righteous acts of God. In judgment, which brings about the salvation of his people... It results in the nation coming to God's holy mountain to worship Him. That's our future. That's our promised inheritance. But in a very real sense, it's already ours. God has already delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. In Christ, we have redemption, the payment of our guilt for the forgiveness of our sins. More than anything else, it's why we come together to celebrate and rejoice and worship Him. It's because we have a new identity, a new standing, a new song that comes from a new and fundamentally different perspective. 
Let that new perspective flood over you. Make that a conscious decision when your joy and thanksgiving are running low. Return over and over again to take a fresh look at the story of redemption. Don't let yourself think you've heard it all before, it has nothing to teach you or to fill you with renewed joy. We're going to sing the song of redemption forever. And we're never going to get tired of it. Let that song fill your mind and your heart and your thoughts with the awe and gratitude that comes from knowing what God has accomplished for you by his great power and grace. Let's pray. Lord, it would have to be a heart of stone that did not respond to your mighty works with awe and thanksgiving. In fact, that's what we once had. We had hearts of stone, but this is part of your work as well, to take those old stony hearts from us and give us new hearts of flesh, hearts that receive the life of your spirit, are enabled to give you praise and thanksgiving. Our words are, are very weak and inadequate, but we do tell you at this moment, thank you for what you have done. Thank you for loving us, saving us through the work of your Son. Thank you for rescuing us from the domain of darkness. Thank you for making us members of your kingdom. So would you teach us to give you praise and thanks all the days of that kingdom, which we know will last forever. We pray in the name of our great master and redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen.